Haven't you heard? A queen is on the rise. Wear a mini hat so she can open up your eyes. Join the convo, the podcast is lit. Cop a pen to the spice up your fit, yeah. She's a producer, you can vibe to a remix. She do the most, but she ain't come to do the least. Whether it's the combo or the music you want, find it all here at tttalks.com. Come and stimulate your mind with tttalks. Promise you'll never fall behind with The knowledge you're seeking, you can find peace family it's your girl tt from tt talks some of y'all call it titty talks <laughs> glad to be back behind the mic again to bring you some more bomb content feeling good you know i'm in the vibe i'm enjoying the spring weather it's warming up i'm so excited about that i'm a floridian yo so whoever said that winter was the most wonderful time of the year i just i can't relate okay but anyway, I've been busy. I've been in the lab pumping out content. Make sure that you are subscribed to my TT Talks YouTube channel. I'm starting to put a lot of video content there. So you want to check me out. Speaking of video content, I just dropped an animation. Y'all, I don't, I, I don't think y'all heard me. I dropped an animation, yo. It's so adorable and fun. It's it's like Bebe's Kids meets Proud Family, yo. It, it gives you that aesthetic. So shout out to my brother Dion, who is a creator, artist, and animator at Peace Love Animate. You can find him on IG at I am Ninja D and at PXLXA Studio. Also, if you still haven't seen my other promo video, first ask yourself why you have chosen not to get it together stop what you're doing and go to youtube type in tt talks subscribe and experience the dopeness and catch up mustard also make sure you visit tttalks.com for beats blog and merch thank you so much for the love you are shown for the official tt talks pins like I say on the interwebs, I'm slinging pins for the wins. If you want a set, you better get them now because they are moving fast. If you want to monetarily assist me, purchasing pins and other merch is one way. Patreon is another. You can go to patreon.com, look up TT Talk, see how you can help me to continue to consistently make content. I really want to increase my frequency, but time and finances constrict me. Uh, you can send financial donations to tttalks.com in the donation section. I take Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, crypto. Uh, my crypto wallet addresses are on tttalks.com. All of this is in the donation section. You know, TT, don't turn down no coins. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share if you are enjoying the content. You can go to tttalks.com, TT Talks fan page on Facebook, at TT Talks on IG, at Miss TT Talks on Twitter, that's MS, TT Talks on YouTube, at Miss TT Talks at gmail.com. I also started a TT Talks Facebook group, y'all. It's filled with dope people just hanging out on the interwebs, talking shit, and lifting each other up. It's wonderful. You should hop through. Um, I will be dropping all my content there first. So make sure you get in on the group, all right? And if you want to link, call, or shoot me a text to 850-509-1194. And if you really want to remember the number, you can just use your early 2000s Mike Jones voice and say 850-509-1194. That's my cell phone number. Hit me up on the low. <laughs> so yeah, that way you don't forget. Hit me up. Uh, if you want to do business or... or talk about how I can host your event or be a guest on your show or be on a panel or do some beats and instrumentals for your content whatever just reach out I'm pretty accessible I hope y'all enjoyed my previous episode episode 19 with my sister 
Omi Pinnock, founder of the fashion and lifestyle brand EWA. We had such an amazing combo. For those of you who missed it, I'm gonna play a little clip here so you can catch a piece of this magic. If you already heard it, you already know it was a live combo, okay? But as black people, our ancestors' blood runs through our veins. Mm -hmm. And it's important that we venerate them, know who they are, understand who they are, and learn from their lessons and mm -hmm. have them as a part of our spirituality. Absolutely. So Christian, uh, Buddhist, uh, you know, you practice African traditional religion, it matters not. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is the fact that you have African ancestry you should be very connected to your ancestors. Who were they? What did they do? Um, how have they influenced where you are mm -hmm. you know, and where you're going? And to yeah. be able to call on that energy to kind of propel us forward. Absolutely. Because you are really, you're them, period. <laughs> As my daughter would say. You are um, them. Right. And so who, who they were is a whole lot about who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I come from families of educators, Farmers, people in healthcare, right. midwives, right. and here I am, an educator, <laughs> a doula. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Doing healing, medical stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? All of that stuff, farming, growing vegetables and stuff. Yeah. That's ancestral. That's who we are, exactly. That's, That's all dope, right? Right. And what's even doper is that this episode has a video. So go to my YouTube channel to watch it and catch up, mustard. Come on now. So here we are at episode 20. I'm super excited about this episode. I have my friend, Dr. Ashegun Henry, who is a fellow FAMU grad. He's an MIT grad, mechanical engineer and professor. And he's gonna talk about renewable energy, climate change, and his research in that field. So if you give a damn about the environment and the world we live in, you will gain a lot from this discussion. And stay tuned all the way to the end because I have a special musical surprise for y'all. And y'all know my musical surprises are always dope. So just stay on and enjoy the show, right? In the meantime, you're going to learn so much on this episode. I want you to enjoy and make sure that you share. Peace. Peace, family. It's your girl, TT from TT Talks. Super, super excited about this show today. Have a really good friend of mine on. He is a scientist and educator. He's taught engineering and done research at Georgia Tech and now he's at MIT my good friend Dr. Ashegun Henry thank you so much for coming on Ashegun thank you for having me always good to talk with you um but before we jump into this conversation because we we got a lot to cover in a little bit amount of time but talk a little bit by, about yourself your educational background your research and basically what you do for a living okay um so my degrees are in mechanical engineering. Um, started out, I um, grew up in Tallahassee. Um, that's, I guess, how we cross paths or know each other. Mm -hmm. um, went to FAMU for undergrad. Hey. And <laughs> did my bachelor's there. Then went to MIT for grad school. Did master's and PhD there. Then I went to, um, so as, as I was graduating from MIT, I interviewed and got the job at Georgia Tech um, in 2009, but then ended up deferring on start dates, so I actually didn't start immediately. Um, I used to, I was basically calling them back each year, calling the chair up and telling them I had another postdoc experience that I wanted to do and could I delay by another year. All in all, I ended up delaying about three years, 
So I didn't start Georgia Tech until 2012. Uh, so first, I went to Oak Ridge National Labs. I was in Knoxville for about a year. Then I went to uh, Northwestern University in the material science department. Uh, so I was in Chicago for about a year. Then I went to um, work at the Department of Energy in a um, what at that time was a new division called um, ARPA-E, or the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy. I was there for about a year and then went and started my position at Georgia Tech. was at Georgia Tech for about four years and then uh, there was some interest in recruiting me here to MIT and you know, after two years of um, discussions, they, they kind of came with an offer I couldn't refuse, so I decided to come. So now I'm here in the chemical engineering department, associate professor without tenure, so I have to go through the tenure process here in MIT now. That's what's up. That's what's up. It's a long. It's a long journey to get to this point right here. Yeah, um, yeah. You said. Uh, you said also. I should talk about what I do. So, um, mm-hmm. my. So research is the main thing. I would say you know research is probably eighty percent of what I do. Teaching is maybe ten or fifteen percent. The other five percent is um, you know what we call service or different committees you get put on and things like that. Um, so research is the main thing. Um, it is the primary job of somebody at of a professor at a you know, what we call like tier one research institutions. Um, and so, you know, my job is basically to manage my research group, bring in funding, write papers, supervise graduate students. Um, the areas of research I work in are somewhat disparate in the sense that they're kind of at two ends of the spectrum. Um, on the one end, uh, both of them center on heat transfer and energy. And so on the one hand, I work on studying how atoms move at the, atom- uh, at the atomic level and that, that vibration that atoms have. Everything, everything around you, including you yourself, every object is made out of atoms and all those atoms are constantly moving, they're constantly vibrating, they never stop. And um, those vibrations, how, how heat is transferred from one location where the temperature is higher to another location where the temperature is lower. Heat flows from hot to cold. And so, uh, you know, hand-wavingly, I would say, you know, the kinetic energy is proportional to the kinetic energy of the atoms, which is the temperature. And then uh, the rate of heat flow is related to that. And so how the atoms are vibrating ultimately dictates whether or not a particular material or object is, is quote-unquote, good mm-hmm. at conducting heat as a good conductor. So just like copper is a good electrical conductor, it's why you use it in your home and, mm-hmm. and, and for items everywhere. And wood, for example, is a very poor electrical conductor. Um, there is also another property that materials have, which is called their thermal conductivity. So every material conducts heat. Some do it poorly, some do it much better. And so um, we study uh, the vibrations of atoms so that we can understand how well different materials conduct heat, and so we study the physics of that. So that that part of my work is, so to speak, what makes me more of a quote-unquote scientist or a physicist. Um, the other portion of my work is uh, more macroscopic in the sense that it is, you know, I work on developing new and innovative technologies that can hopefully move the needle on mitigating climate change. I try to focus on the biggest problems that we have, um, the biggest sources of Carbon emissions come from electricity production and transportation. Um, my the biggest is, tra- is electricity, and so I'm pretty much focused on 
um, how we can decarbonize the electric, electrical grid. Mm-hmm. Doing that is not as simple as just putting up uh, solar panels and wind, um, but one of the key issues is energy storage, and so I work on developing uh, energy storage technology. There's one in particular that I'm working on, um, and it ultimately uh, revolves around this notion of storing heat rather than storing electricity. So we convert electricity to heat, store it as heat, which can be 10 to 100 times cheaper than storing electricity, and then convert it back to electricity later when you want it. Mm. Um, so that's one of the technologies I work on. Also working on another technology for hydrogen production and some other related things. But um, those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum of my work. That's freaking awesome, actually, and, and very interesting. <laughs> um, and so I just want everybody to understand that this show kind of all stemmed from a post that Dr. Henry put up on Facebook, and it was an article um, on climate change, and the title read, There's so much CO2 in the atmosphere that planting trees can no longer save us. And Ashagon's caption said, not that planting trees was ever a viable strategy. <laughs> So uh, that sparked some interesting dialogue in the comments. And it really intrigued me because, you know, as he mentioned a few minutes ago, his life work kind of revolves around um, using his knowledge in some aspects to to help mitigate climate change. Um, And can you kind of break down to my listeners, I should go into layman terms, exactly what what climate change is really and why is it such a critical issue for for humanity um because it's it's really critical it's like at a really critical level and all of the scientists are pulling their hair out um like yo yo listen and everybody just like la da 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 you know not really understanding the severity and the critical nature of what's happening so kind of talk a little bit about that yeah, I mean, I would say in, in my view and in many people's view who are um, aware of what's going on, you know, climate change is uh, arguably the most important problem in the history of mankind. It is, it is effectively at this point a fight for the survival of the human species. Um, it's a problem that is very likely if we do not do enough or make enough significant radical changes fast enough the human species will, in fact, without a doubt, go extinct on this planet. Um, the time it will take to do that is quite long, so it's not like it's going to happen next year or in 10 years or even 100 years. But one thing that many scientists appreciate that's you know, a little difficult for folks who may not have a math or science background to appreciate is that there are many phenomena in science beyond, you, know, you can define a, a point beyond which is a call a tipping point or mm-hmm. a point of no return. Like, so, you know, a good example is um, there's this picture that just came out about the black hole, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you see is a circle and then you see this light that's, you know, around the circle. And what's significant about that is where the light starts is exactly, quote unquote, the tipping point. It's exactly where beyond, outside of that radius, the light is able to escape the gravitational pull of the black hole. Mm-hmm. And inside that radius, no light can escape. So mm. it looks completely black. Mm. And so it's the very nonlinear, the very, you know, the phenomena that, that there's, a, there's a tipping point. And so it's in, in the case of climate change, the tipping point is difficult to put a finger on. There are predictions that the tipping point is essentially at the end of this century. But 
the point is that once you get beyond that point, there is no going back. Mm. There's no way out. There's no way to stop it. There's no way to, to change the course of the future that will happen. It will, in fact, unload, um, um, evolve and, and, and will, will happen in a way that we can't stop, in a way that we can't change it. And so most of the concern is around us approaching or maybe, you know, some people say we may even pass past the tipping point and it's a futile effort at this point. Mm. But let me say, what is the problem itself? So, so the Earth is actually 93 million miles away from the sun. And energy, the sun powers the earth, so to speak. Uh, so, so light hits the earth, it runs and fuels all types of ecological, biological processes on earth. Um, and over the last few millennia, the earth and the sun, or let me say the earth, has established what we, what we might call like a steady state or a a state of existence where the temperature on the surface of the Earth is rather even, meaning it's at, a, it's at a temperature that is conducive to sustaining the life forms that have evolved that exist on this planet now. And, and that has allowed life to flourish and exist in the way that it does. And that balance, though, is very um, uh, delicate. And so as human beings have begun utilizing technologies, in the last century or so that uh, emit carbon dioxide. The two main technologies that are of concern here are electricity production, so how we get electricity. We created the electrical grid. The electricity that you use comes from power plants. Those power plants have turbines inside them. Mm -hmm. Those turbines are powered by heat, and where that heat comes from is burning a fuel. And that fuel is either, you know, for, for a long time it's been coal. Coal is carbon. So what happens is the energy is released because carbon bonds with oxygen and there's a lot of kinetic energy that comes out. And so the resulting gas that is formed is CO2. It's carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide as a gas itself is not particularly toxic. You know, it's what you're breathing out every time you breathe out. You breathe out carbon dioxide. Um, but the point is there's a lot of that that is now being emitted into the atmosphere as a result of the proliferation of electricity production and also transportation based on gasoline engines. So gasoline is comprised of hydrocarbon chains, so it's lots of carbon and lots of hydrogen. So when you burn it in your car inside the internal combustion engine, you make a combination of water and CO2. And so as a lot of this CO2 has gone out into the atmosphere, um, it has changed the chemistry of the atmosphere a little bit in the sense that the concentration of, of carbon dioxide has increased. And carbon dioxide has a particular effect in the sense when it comes to, when we talk about this light that's coming from the sun. So generally speaking, the carbon dioxide is transparent to the light coming from the sun. So the light from the sun just goes straight through it, hits the earth. The problem is the light that the earth is emitting back out to space. So light comes in from the sun, it heats up the, the surface of the earth, and then the earth is what we call re-radiating. It is also emitting light. Mm. Every object around you, including yourself, is emitting light all the time. Mm. Um, this is how like an infrared camera works or night vision works. Mm. So night mm -hmm. vision works because your body and objects at, let's say, room temperature or any, any temperature above absolute zero is emitting some form of light. And our eyes, human beings' eyes, are accustomed to seeing specifically in a, 
a range of frequencies mm -hmm. of light. Those are the only frequencies we can pick up. Right. But many right. other frequencies exist. Radio waves exist. Microwaves exactly. exist. You can't see it, but it's there. Mm -hmm. Infrared, so, ultraviolet. Yeah. Exactly. So the infrared is the key. The infrared is key. So so at room temperature, the temperature that we are accustomed to living at, at, at as human beings on the surface of the earth, the light that is being emitted by our bodies, the plants, the, the, the ocean, the ground, everything is emitting infrared light. And the problem is that the CO2 in the atmosphere actually absorbs part of that uh, infrared light uh, or, and, and, and traps some of that energy here on the surface of the earth uh, in, in the atmosphere. And it seems like a small effect, but when you look at the amount of CO2 and the amount of light that's being emitted from the Earth, mm -hmm. over time, it causes the Earth to heat up. Mm. It's causing the atmosphere to heat up. It's causing glaciers to melt. It's causing a ton of problems. So this is this notion of global warming, is that the planet is actually warming up, moving away from this steady temperature that it had for many, many uh, millennia that was conducive to um, Earth, the life forms that we have on Earth. And ultimately, if you know, as we continue to, we're actually, you know, the amount of CO2 we put in the air is actually still increasing every year. We're actually putting more CO2 every year. Um, and so it's predicted, you know, this is going to disrupt the normal weather patterns that we're used to. You see more extreme weather events, um, and it starts to destroy uh, certain ecosystems and cause all kinds of destabilization that mm. ultimately, for us as human beings, uh, as essentially, I guess, the apex predator on the planet or the, 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 the animals that require uh, or live off of, of the sustenance, uh, derive our sustenance from, from other animals and other plants' existence, we are highly susceptible to, mm. to extinction. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many other species that are already going extinct. It's not often um, talked about. There was another article I posted prior to this one that we're referring to that talked about the rate of extinction of many insect species is, you know, well above what has been average for millennia, and this, this is all indicative of what's called uh, the um, uh, Holocene um, extinction, which is essentially the sixth mass extinction on Earth. So, throughout Earth's history, there have been fluctuations in the amount of CO2 on Earth, and and it has correlated with when. Um, almost all life on Earth has died out. And there have been five such events throughout the uh, history of Earth that we're aware of. And the data that people are taking now suggests that we have already begun the sixth mass extinction of, 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 of beings on this planet. And so, you know, the question is whether or not we can reverse it or stop it. Um, we are very well aware that a it is largely due or largely affected by the carbon dioxide put out from various processes, that uh, industrial processes that have developed. Um, but it, it is, it is you know, fighting for the, the potential survival of humanity mm. uh, in, the, in, in the coming centuries. So shed some light on, <laughs> from your perspective, on like uh, certain people in like... Um, leadership in the country or or government or even lay people who are just saying ah the earth naturally goes through these heating and cooling cycles uh you know 
why are y'all acting like this is not something that happens on the planet? Can you kind of shed some light on that from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it is true that the Earth has gone, undergone, um, and continues to undergo natural fluctuations in the Earth climate. Mm -hmm. um, what has happened and what is happening now is far from natural. Um, and the effects are going to be far from quote-unquote natural or what's consistent with the history of the Earth over the last few uh, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and so, you know, I, I sat in on a course actually this summer last year on uh, some professors here in um, geosciences teaching about climate change. And I was, was interested to learn, like, so, like, one of the things that people often cite is, you know, if you look at the CO2 concentration in, in the Earth's atmosphere over... Um, many, many millennia, it has risen and fallen, um, and, and, and the temperature of the Earth has also risen and fallen. Um, but that is largely driven by, um, they correlated it, and there's a, some guy, I forget who it's named after, but he realized that this is related to the Earth's processional cycle. And so, um, many people may not aware, this is actually, this was cool. I learned about the processional cycle because of uh, a, a summer where it was studying the pyramids is uh, uh, a great experience enabled by a good mentor of mine, Mikola Abdullah, mm. uh, Dr. Mikola. He, he allowed us, or he, he brought me on as a kid to work with some of his students uh, to study the pyramids, and one of the things I learned about is what's called the processional cycle. So, you know, the, the Earth is rotating, and we talk about the Earth rotating about its axis. Um, the thing that people, many people may not underappreciate is that the is that the axis itself is also moving. So the move, the axis itself is wobbling, kind of like you have a you ever spin a top on a on a on a clean surface, right? A spinning top it looks like it's spinning, you know, for a little while, but then as you watch it a little while, uh, the the axis around which it's spinning itself will start to wobble, mm -hmm. and that wobble, the Earth is doing that wobbling now. Um, but the wobble is very slow. So one circle, one cycle of, let's say, the wobble, the axis going around and coming back to itself is like 27,000 years. Um, now, what's, what's, how I learned about it was actually in the context of studying the pyramids. So the ancient Egyptians knew about this. Mm -hmm. They actually knew about this cycle. Um, and actually, it's built into the pyramids. Wow. <laughs> so there's a, there, are certain, there are certain substructures inside the pyramids where certain shafts they have in the pyramids align with certain stars mm -hmm. only at certain parts of that processional cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, you know, essentially it shows you that they were aware that this cycle was happening, that the stars gradually move up and down throughout um, uh, thousands and thousands of years. And so that requires a lot of precision. But point is, um, this, this processional cycle is also related to and it's driving the Earth's climate to change. But that's over a much longer period, tens of thousands of years than the very short spike in CO2 concentration that we've seen in the Earth's, Earth's atmosphere, which has only happened over the last, let's say, 100 to 150 years. But that, that, is, that is markedly different, um, and it's clearly traced. It's, there is no doubt in anybody's mind that that is caused by human beings, what we call anthropogenic climate change. It's, it's due to man-made CO2 emissions. Wow, wow, wow. So that, if... if if this is someone's real first time of really having a true breakdown of what, um, you know, climate change is and, and the critical nature of what's happening, um, 
they're probably freaking out right now. <laughs> like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do? You know, it's like, because this is really, it's kind of doom and gloom information, you know, but you know, it's yeah. that, it really is that urgent. Um, mm -hmm. And so in that thread, uh, the original thread that, you know, I've been referring to, um, which kind of spurred this whole conversation, um, you know, to emerge, you laid out a few strategies um, and, and I kind of have them bullet pointed out, which how you responded in the thread. Um, and I'm just going to let you know one by one each point, and I want you to just kind of expound on it. Um, the okay. first, the first um, point that you laid out was to get educated. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll start there. So how can somebody, yeah. just a lay person who's not necessarily in the scientific world, how can they get educated? Yeah, I mean, um, there is a need for us on the scientific side to create more lay person documents mm. um true I'll, I'll and media some some exist um there is some exist there's all kinds of, of things people have been trying to do because but it's a bit out of our lane as scientists so let me maybe let me maybe give as a disclaimer to understand why you know you don't see it on tv every day and you don't see you know alarms going off to alert you about this is it's largely because as scientists, the, the culture of science and the, 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 the premise that scientists stand on is one of skepticism mm. and, and one of, of uh, we, we err on the side of I don't know before we err on the side of being sure about something. And so for that reason, we tend, scientists tend to prefer to be precise with their language and how they communicate things. And so there's a, there may be, you know, there's a little bit of resistance or it's not, it's not the first thought of many scientists to write up their results for the various things that they're working on in a way that a lay person could understand. And this is why very often what you'll see, and there's like a whole, I guess, sub-industry of this where, you know, scientists pub, we write what we call peer-reviewed journal publications. Mm -hmm. you know, these are actual technical documents that summarize some technical work that somebody did, they took some data, uh, they modeled something, they re report the results, that then gets shipped out to other scientists who then, um, in a blind process, meaning the reviewers are not people you know who they are, they then review your work and, and, and screen it and determine whether or not it was done in a sound way. And that's the way scientists normally communicate. That's how we communicate things. Um, and so there's a little bit of a hesitation, I think, on the part of scientists to create content that is easily accessible and intelligible for the lay audience. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I'll preface with that, meaning that there isn't, there isn't a ton, but what I am going to suggest, it may not be the easiest thing to read, but uh, it, it, it's probably a good starting point because it's, it's rigorous, it's true, it's, it's, it's accurate, it's precise. Uh, and that, that main documents or set of documents I suggest is what's called the IPCC reports. IPCC stands for the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, so climate change is a well-acknowledged problem and phenomenon by people and scientists around the world. It's not like there's one quack or it's just me running around yelling at people telling you this problem is going to happen. It is essentially almost unanimously agreed and unanimously understood among scientists that it's a real phenomenon, it's happening, and we need to do something about it. So 
governments around the world have agreed and formed a organization that they essentially appoint scientists from their country and there's various people um, uh, throughout the organization to work with the large organization. And their job is basically they keep an eye on this problem and report to the general public and to the government how bad it is and what and they make recommendations to governments on this is what we should do about it. Mm. And so those those reports are free. You can get them. You just go to, I don't know if it's IPCC.org or something like that. But if you just, uh, I think I put their link, oh, a link. In, yeah, in that and, and I'll put the link at the end of the show, y'all. Um, you know, after after Dr. Henry and I finish our discussion at the end, when I finish up and wrap things up, I'll make sure I'll put the link in there um, so you know exactly where to go. Yeah, there's there's um, there's a bunch of reports, so there's a, there's a lot to sift through. You can look at just maybe the summary reports, mm-hmm. even though I mean, and this, this is just to give you a sense of the depth, like how deep, how how extensive the scientific literature is on, I think there's even a new journal, Nature Climate Change. Like there's an entire journal. There's multiple journals, journals entirely dedicated to studying this problem. So these reports, like even the summary report, like just the summary document. So this is a summary of a annual report. Like that's even a hundred pages on its own. So, so oh, there's wow. a lot of content in these things. I mean, these, there's a lot of work going on. A lot of people are focused on this. A lot of people are paying attention to it. It does not make it into the mainstream media very often. That article that I posted, I think it was from what businessinsider.com, something like that. I mean, that 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 those are instances where it's you know gradually starting to become more of a mainstream topic. Um, but that's a good place to start, I would say, is the IPCC reports, getting educated, and, and just you can probably you know I wouldn't be surprised if there's a decent amount of people giving overviews and lectures on YouTube and, and whatnot, you can probably uh, find some decent content in that in that regard that gives you kind of a summary and lets you know what's happening. But, you know, this is a, this is a problem that is being measured and studied as it is happening. There's, there's like, for all the people that work on it, I mean, we don't, there's no doubt in our mind it's real and it's happening. I mean, people are reporting on all kinds of species dying off. I mean, these extinctions are happening already. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, human beings aren't the first ones to go. Um, and so there's a bunch of things that are that have already died off, and mm. so there are ecologists, the biologists that are tracking these things. They track the numbers, they track the, the, the amount of males and females. They do whole studies. I mean, this is whole people's whole career. They study these things. Mm. Um, there's another. There's an organization that I have started to get. I'm trying to pay attention to it. I think I'm signed up to be like a part of it. I, I don't. Um, I, I don't know to what extent they produce content that's easily accessible or intelligible by the lay person but there's even a a um, I think he's I forget what school he's at, I think he's maybe North Carolina or somewhere there's a guy who created a um, a document some years ago I think well maybe over a decade ago mm-hmm. um, which was called like the scientist warning to humanity mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and he circulated it, and like thousands of scientists signed on to it. Like this is an accurate assessment of what is happening, and it gives like like the late that's 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 a good that's a good example. Like like Google uh, scientists warning to humanity. I think that's what it's called. Mm. And and that document lays out like you know in layman's terms, here's what's happening, here's what's going to happen, and here's what we need to do about it. 
fast and we're not doing enough fast enough. Um, mm. So that kind of gives you like a bit of a crash course. That's a short document. I think it's like one or two pages. That's easy to read. But it'll give you a sense for like how dire this situation is in the minds of the people who are actually paying attention. Um, and so they recently put together an, a follow-up document, like scientists, scientists follow-up warning <laughs> to humanity. Ten, <laughs> just in case you didn't hear later, it the first time. Just in, case, just in case you didn't get the memo, right? Like the, <laughs> the second warning is like, basically we told you every week we have, we have severely warned against this and it is, and it is, and just as predicted, it is happening. There are more severe weather events. There are more this, there's species dying on like, all these things like it's check marks like everything we said is happening is happening <laughs> yes you know uh, it's urgent so, so, so you those gotta are, get those, educated y'all we have to get yeah i think i think that's a great place to start just so that you know i expect it will take some time maybe another decade or two before the fear and the panic really sets in yeah i think i think that i don't think it will really hit people until something that they use or depend on or are used to interacting with on a daily basis ceases to exist mm. you know like like if like if coffee beans go extinct <laughs> like i think then americans will pay attention like wow. if coffee beans when it's a climate change like all of a sudden Listen, people will get worried if coffee beans <laughs> go extinct we're not we're not going to go extinct because of climate change we're going to go extinct because people don't have their caffeine that's what's exactly. gonna happen. It's gonna go. Listen, exactly. yeah. please don't let that happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I, I, I don't anticipate that the needle on, on public opinion and understanding is gonna move tremendously. Mm-hmm. You know, in the near future, but I do, and 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 this is okay. Let me let me maybe qualify that statement. Um, there is significant understanding and appreciation about these problems by people who are living in areas that are most susceptible to feeling the effects of it soonest. Right. So people that live on coastline, people that depend on fish and, 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 and marine life and things like that, these are, these are groups of people that are feeling it the most in the first, and they are essentially furthest from the microphone when it comes to, um, I guess, mainstream media right and so nobody cares nobody pays attention um so the people who are closest to the microphone are likely last to be hit Mm. you know quite honestly um but uh but it is what it is i mean you know one one great example i was talking to a friend of mine earlier or, or commented to a friend of mine earlier on on online about new orleans being is listed as one of the first cities one of the worst cities that's going to be hit by the rising seawater because you know like i guess let me say let me say it in very lame layman's terms like you know the north pole is like a giant you know mass of ice like it's melting because of this like it's melting and because it's melting <laughs> the the water level is rising on the entire earth and cities that are on the coastlines will be underwater like miami is going to be gone probably mm-hmm. in the next century like it won't exist it won't it can't it can't it cease to be there it'll be underwater mm-hmm. so these are the kinds of things that you know scientists are very well aware of like we're, we're aware that it's happening um and, and we're trying to get people to pay more attention and demand that governments do more to 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 mitigate it mm. it's crazy i was watching i think i was reading an article earlier today about this 
uh, this gentleman that lives kind of like in the heart of Miami and he kind of has this old house uh, that he's refusing to move or, or sell um, because it has um, ancient artifacts that have come up and he has like a natural spring that's like coming up in his backyard and um, they found all, you know, lots of ancient things from the original indigenous people that used to live in Miami. And um, he's refusing to sell it. The city and developers are offering him like, you know, $2 million. And he's refusing to move. And somebody in the comments, because, you know, the comment section is always where the action is, was like, he needs to just take that money and run because that shit's going to be gone anyway soon. Exactly. You know, he was yeah. just like, it doesn't even matter that he's holding the ground there. He was like, the great mother is going to have her reckoning anyway. So take the money yeah. and go because it's about to be underwater anyway. And when I read that, I was like, wow, he's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's so yeah. he's so correct. Um, but your second point in, in 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 your list of strategies was to get calibrated. And you were just encouraging people to kind of use their knowledge and understanding of society and human behavior and everything to kind of develop their own ideas on solving problems. And, um, you know, talk a little bit more about getting calibrated and, and, and what, what it yeah, this, will really take. This, this is the part that scientists, I, I suspect, they haven't done and won't do. They, they will tell you, they will want to tell you the data. They will give you the data and they will tell you the data suggests the following is going to happen. But everything they're going to tell you is what's going to happen, like, physically because of climate change. Like, the weather is going to be bad and, you know, all these kinds of effects, physical effects. They won't, scientists will not want to offer any opinion, any anything in regards to what needs to happen or will happen politically, socially, economically, or otherwise. Because it'll be viewed as it's outside of our expertise, outside of our lane, and we prefer to just stick to the data. The data says X, this is what we're confident in, in, in extrapolating as a result of that. But when you start talking about social things, that's significantly far outside our sphere, and so we won't really want to comment on that. So I think that it's up to the lay person to really utilize whatever faculties and whatever knowledge base they have mm -hmm. and whatever and this is where i think it's really useful if social scientists begin to get involved in this is you know in offering some projections some expert opinions on okay if this is going to happen then these are the consequences this is what's going to happen in society as a result of that um, but for now i'm not aware of any scientists that will say that will i mean they have their own opinions they just won't share it as an expert mm. expert opinion right you know uh, and so you know i think that's the next step is once you get educated you you see what the problem is now you have to do your own extrapolation of what do you think is going to happen how's this going to play out right you know you know this have not you know you know if you know some history you know how things have played out previously just do the math Think about what's going to happen to you, what's going to happen to people that look like you, what's going to happen to people that live in the areas where you live, and do the math. Imagine what will happen as a result of this, this uh, complete shifting of, of, of the Earth's climate. Mm -hmm. And once you do that math, I suspect many people will come to, you know, probably not the same conclusions as me, but, you know, maybe in the same uh, ballpark as me in that in that. You know, as this gets worse, you know, there will be panic. There will be <laughs> um, significant changes to society to try and address these things. Right. And 
and, and we can either be prepared and the response can be proactive and we can you know move in a direction that ensures that we are likely to survive on this planet or we can ignore it or we can do nothing but at the end of the day the results will be the same right you know, in the sense that uh, it's, it's coming it's happening Indeed. it's already happening and and the only question is what are we going to do about it mm-hmm. and what's that going to look like right and that part people have to kind of imagine and do the math for themselves like what is that really going to look like mm. but i think it's important people do that because you know what what let me maybe let me maybe say very plainly what is required <laughs> and just just to kind of put it in perspective mm-hmm. like so many of the things that are used in modern quote-unquote modern society uh, involve co2 production mm. as a byproduct right let me give you a couple. So we talked about electricity, transportation. Those are the two big ones. But there's a, this whole industries that are based on it. Most of the buildings in cities are made out of concrete and steel, both concrete and steel production, which are these are two of the biggest, highest volume production materials on Earth, require the production of CO2. The way concrete is made requires making CO2. The way steel is produced requires making CO2. The way aluminum is produced requires making CO2. <laughs> right. So, right. so all, all of these, you know, you have to, we have to essentially decarbonize. We have to literally reinvent the way we make concrete. Yeah. A new technique, new way of making concrete has to be created, or buildings have to be made out of some other material other than concrete. Like, that is what is required. Like, the entire electricity infrastructure, not half of it, not 10% of it, all of it. It has to be completely to be overhauled. Exactly. And that is that. And people should do the calculation and realize that is trillions of dollars of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's so it's, it's uh, so probably the easiest way to, to see that, uh, you know, is, is I think uh, global power consumption of uh, on, the, on Earth is like, maybe like, I think like 15 to 20 terawatts. Terawatts is like 10 to the 12 watts. And the cost of a power plant is approximately one dollar per watt. Hmm. That's ten to the twelve. That's one with twelve zeros behind it. That's hmm. dollar. That's actually like twenty with twelve zeros behind it. Dollars. If you want to like replace that infrastructure, like, it is extremely expensive. And that's just the power. Then that's then you've got the transmission. Then you've got the fact that if you switch to, uh, let's say, solar cells and wind, you have to store the energy somehow. And this this is the this is particularly the problem that I work on. Which now makes everything even more expensive because now you can't just buy the converter; you got to buy the battery too. Yeah. Um, and and current current electric grid doesn't have any batteries. Um, not only that, you're talking about all the cars can no longer drive on gasoline. They can't. Like it, that's it's a complete overhaul. All the gasoline's got to go. So you talk about what are the biggest companies, richest, most highest revenue companies on earth? Of course, the oil companies, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about they can no longer exist and and do business the way they currently make money as a profitable business we are talking about leaving the oil in the ground like it's there they could pump it out but we we choose not to because it's going to kill us right that is that is what we are up against is that is the level of shift that has to happen so you're you're basically disrupting the the streams of money from these really powerful entities, the most powerful entities. You have to, I think you said something about you really have to just like go to war with them 
about it because they're not just going to give it up freely. They're making too much money. Exactly. They exactly. eat fantastically. Exactly. And this is this is exactly the part I'm saying about do the math yourself. Mm. This is not something a scientist will tell you, oh, because these, these companies make this much money, they will have this response. Scientists won't say that. It's up to you to say that and realize that that is the, that is what is going to happen as a result. Like, mm. you, you know, we talk about coal and electricity production, like, it, you know, part of the part of the pushback is it's going to mean loss of jobs. <laughs> There's yeah. people who go and pull the coal out of the ground. They won't have a job anymore. Yeah. <laughs> There's people that maintain all these power plants. They, they won't have a job anymore. Like it means the loss of jobs. It means the loss of some of the biggest and most powerful and important industries on Earth. Wow. They fuel the entire modern society. And so you're talking about changing that over to something else. And, and that's a huge, huge ask. And the thing is, you know, these companies, their, their default position, I can tell you, I mean, my, my perspective is their default position is going to be, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll do that if you want, but you're going to pay for it. They'll make you pay for it. They're going to make the consumer, the, 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 the end user, foot the bill. Mm. And so as long as they get to keep making money, they'll, they'll, they'll be okay with it. Absolutely. Um, but the reality is I don't Facts. know that that's feasible. That's so true. And, and I'm going to quote you real quick. I'm, 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 I'm quoting Dr. Henry here from this Facebook post. He, he said in regards to this that many people will have to become so passionate about it that they are willing to die for it. Absolutely. This is how critical it is. You know, we're having we're going to have to do a lot of pushback on entities. We're having to do a lot of pushback on our livelihoods. We have to sacrifice a lot. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's you know, a I, lot. I expect, I expect in, in, in a century or two, I don't know that there will even be history books anymore, but whatever documents or whatever form of media attempts to recount history, this, this period, probably coming up in the next one to 200 years, will likely be referred to as the, the climate change war. You know, like this, Wow, it's going to make or break us. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be... A period where that shit sound crazy. Know, the climate change wars. It sounds like an episode of Star Wars or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, wow. you're talking about a, a, an entire planet. Yeah, that's yeah. essentially a itself, right? You know, climate change wars. Um, I don't even know how to feel about that. Good lord. Yeah, I mean, the, to me, the thing is, you should feel angry. You should feel angry I do. that. An- anxious, that, scared. That, that. I'm about to turn all the lights off in the house right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I'm glad shit. we're gonna get this. I'm glad we're going to get to some of the other points because it'll be important for you to realize like what things you can and can't, what yeah. things you can do yeah. that will actually have some significant impact versus things that many people like to say you can do that I don't yeah. think actually do much. We're we're going to address all of that. I I don't want y'all to leave this show feeling like well shit it's over. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't want that orientation either because uh, we're still at a place, according to many scientists, where we can turn things around, but we don't have much time. Because like you like you yeah. was talking about earlier, we're, if we're not at the tipping point now, we're very close. So we got to get it together. But this next point that you made was very interesting. And I want to, I want you to just take a little side rail. You don't have to talk about it too long. You said get active politically and talk a little bit about that. But before we do that, I want you to talk a little bit, real briefly, about your experience. Dr. Henry actually... Um, did make a huge push to get active politically, and he actually ran for office when you were living in Atlanta. <laughs> you did. 
You did. I need people to understand um, that he's not just really telling us all of these things just because he's like, oh, I'm a scientist and this is what I've learned in my laboratory. Like he's actually <laughs> integrating this information and trying to, you know, reach out into our, our communities and do things. And you had some very interesting, um, you know, aspects in your platform in regards to um, not just development of the physical structures in your community, but also in, in, you know, in trying to increase revenue, but also in terms of some environmental things. So you can kind of talk a little bit about that. You don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but just, you know, speak on it a little bit. Okay. Well, what, what I will say is I, I, I did run and I did, I lost miserably. <laughs> but I can, if I, I lived in Atlanta, I would have voted. I would have voted. <laughs> I would have voted for you. So. I got, I got, you know, many people tried to tell me, you know, this is how politics works, this is how politics works, and I, and I, I agreed with them, um, but it, I, I thought it was an opportunity to possibly take a left turn and do something different. Right. Um, it didn't, it didn't work out that way, but um, that, you know, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll frame that in this way. I mean, one of the things that I am trying to do in my field and in, in science and engineering in general is to push more scientists and engineers to assume political roles mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's so it's so counter to 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 the to our discipline because science is about facts science is about evidence science is about logic science is about uh, making optimal decisions that we calculate we when we're wrong or when we have an error we quantify it. like we know how wrong we are right like like those those are all things that are tenets of how we conduct scientific investigations politics is the total opposite of that um, at least in its current form and it is very unappealing to scientists and engineers yeah. to, to in any way engage the political process because most Scientists and engineers feel like it's a complete waste of time. They feel like they can have a much bigger impact in the lab. Mm -hmm. But I am largely convinced that we, we as scientists and engineers, for any of those people, any, any scientists and engineers who may ever listen to this, we have to do more. We have to, we have to push beyond our comfort zone and get involved True. politically and actively. And, and, and I'll say that for a couple, I think there's a, a number of reasons why that would be a good thing. One of the most important reasons, which is often cited, is if you look at Congress, um, the most dominant profession and degree that people in Congress have is they're like liberal arts majors, political science majors, and, and lawyers. Mm -hmm. And so laws in this country, there's essentially almost no scientific or engineering representation in Congress. That's a problem. And that's a big problem, right? That's so, a problem. So no, no one who thinks the way we think is involved in this, you know, at least even a representative in this process of making decision making. And I think it's very, very, very valuable to have people who think like engineers, who are trained like engineers and scientists in those types of positions, because in a very straightforward way of saying it, like we are trained problem solvers. Like yeah. that's what we do. Yes. And and that those skills can translate beyond science and engineering problems. Mm. We can utilize how we you know I'll, I'll um, take a quick slight detour um, to to tell a, a very short story. I was talking with a colleague 
he's telling a story about his son. His son is, you know, wanted to be a landscape photographer. This guy's like a professor, very prestigious professor. He's trying to push his son to do uh, science and engineering. His son ends up getting like a graduate degree in like uh, meteorology, studying studying the weather. And um, but his son insisted on being a landscape photographer. So he goes out to a landscape photographer. His his life as a landscape photographer is not going well. He's not making much money, and uh, he's unable to sustain himself. So the, the parents were caring for a few months and said, look, you know, you've got until the end of this many months to, to get self-sustaining. Otherwise, you need to go back to school and get a real job kind of thing. Right. And in the last month, or, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention, uh, as he got to the last month where it wasn't working out, he brought to, so landscape photography is what I'm making an analogy to is politics. He brought science and engineering to landscape photography and made it and made it sustainable. So what he did is he realized that what most landscape photographers do is they go and they camp out at sites where they think they're going to get an awesome picture and they, they wait and they may wait for several days and camp, camp out for the light, lighting to be exactly mm-hmm. perfect, a beautiful shot of the sun rising or setting over the Golden Gate Bridge or something like that. And so as a scientist... Uh, with some background in meteorology, all he did was he wrote an app. He wrote a mobile app that actually uh, downloads meteorological data and runs algorithms to predict what are the right locations to go to at what time so that you could take the best picture. Oh, wow. And it saves, it saves landscape photographers a ton of time because instead of camping out, they now just, you know, they used to, he said all the photographers used to hate, hate him because they'd be camping out for a week and he would show up at the last five minutes, right? Because he knew exactly when the sun was going to oh, be in the right wow. spot in the lighting. He would show up at five minutes before, take his shot and leave and, uh, and, and, and go back to the driving Uber. <laughs> and so wow. um, I said all that to say that as a scientist and engineer, the toolkit that we work with in terms of how we approach problems, how we think about problems, how we think about optimality, how we think about modeling, how we think about a lot of things and structure and approaching problems. It's drastically different. It's, it, it, it is, we're trained. We have, a, we have a framework for these things. And so we have a bunch of societal problems, a lot of societal problems that can be fixed, can be addressed in utilizing this toolkit. And I think it's as simple as we need people with that training to go do that job. And it's not a it's not a uh, it's not a job that you would you know take a lot of um, you know be encouraged to do. Um, I'm encouraging people, but it's not like encouraged by the field. It's looked at. It's kind of frowned upon in science and engineering if you go go into politics um, because of what the political field is. But I think it's just a, it's a sacrifice. It's a it's a movement that we have to make that's in the greater good. Mm. So. I tried to quote unquote lead by example by trying to do it. I didn't end up doing it very well because um, I didn't get elected. But point is, I think it's it's important for more people to try and to and to and to, to put themselves in these positions because there's just so many decisions that as scientists and engineers, it's super straightforward for us. It's mm-hmm. clear what the decision should be. It's obvious, um, and, and instead we have you know lawyers and. Um, folks who are not necessarily well-versed on these issues, and they don't know how to solve problems. And, and that, that it's, not, it's not because they're incapable of doing it, it's just they're not trained to do it. They don't they're have not the training. trained. They don't have the training to do it. Because it's a skill that has to be developed right. it is. over time. It is. And, and the rigors of science is what brings it out. So, 
this is probably the part that I think the lay, in terms of impact, this is the most impactful thing a lay person can do, which is to get educated, um, get, after you get educated and get uh, calibrated to what you expect to be the outcomes in these things, to then be willing to start your own organization, start your own group, start whatever you can to not only bring awareness, but to bring demand to the government. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I know many people may have a very cynical view of the government. I do as well. But at the end of the day, um, when you look at, uh, you know, there are groups in this country that have managed to form movements that have demanded laws be enacted, demanded that rules be changed in their favor. And at the end of the day, because they wield so much spending, buying, and I guess I'll even use the word accusational power to, to, to uh, cause disruption in people's lives who oppose their views, you know, they were able to make, change, make laws and change laws. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to take a very proactive view on that. On what will it take? What 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 can you do to move the needle? And and people need to get active in that way. Um, and I don't. It's not my expertise. It's not my field. So I don't really know what that looks like. But I feel like there's a ton of people who think about those kinds of things who do know what that what what it will look like or should look like. And I think people should just take it upon themselves. Like don't you don't need to. I mean, it's great to look to see if you can find an organization to get involved with and contribute to. But, but, you know, we're at the beginning. So um, do not hesitate to do it yourself, to start something yourself, to create something yourself from scratch if you can't find what you're looking for. Hmm. That's a very good point, man. Very good point. So get connected. Get, get connected with people who are already doing it. And if they're not doing it, you're going to have to get together with some people and create it yourself because we have to uh, be very organized and apply pressure. You know, because uh, yeah. we're going up yeah. against not individual people. We're going up against entities. Um, I mean, you know, the first the first and most obvious thing to fight for is a carbon tax. Hmm. I mean, like, you know, right. Uh, just put it in context. Right. Right now. Your electricity companies, um, you, you can go learn about how the electricity market is set up. But basically, there are what are called like usually independent power producers. These are companies that own the actual power plants, they sell to the utility company. The utility company owns and manages the all the hardware, the power lines, and they maintain that. They're the customer-facing portion of the system. Um, you know, if you demand, if you go to them and say, I'm willing to pay 5 or 10% more on my electricity bill, but you have to supply me renewable energy, like that's a demand you can make because these companies are publicly regulated, meaning they don't get to charge whatever they want. They are regulated by the government. So ultimately, the government has an influence on your utility bill, right? Um, and, and the point I'm trying to make is you can demand, you know, we have to push. I think an obvious thing to push for is a carbon tax because the, uh, the companies that produce this power, they just buy fuel and they sell the power and they make money. Simple. The notion of a carbon tax is simply that they should have to pay for the fact that they just spit out a bunch of CO2 and damage the atmosphere, damage, damage the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And, and right now, it's not like as though they just get to buy the fuel and make the money. They're actually subsidized by the government. They're actually getting paid additional money by the government mm-hmm. to stay in business. 
right? So as renewable energy has, the cost has dropped dramatically, solar panels, you know, there's, there's some really interesting historical data. And solar panels is one of the few technologies that has seen um, a cost decrease as, as, as extreme as it has. I think it's like, uh, I, forget, I forget the numbers, but it's like, the cost has decreased by like more than a factor of, more than, more than a factor of 10 since the 1980s. Mm. So it's literally 10 times cheaper than it was in the beginning. Um, and it's now in the sunniest and, and windiest places on Earth. Solar and wind is the cheapest form of electricity there is. It's cheaper than coal. It's cheaper than natural gas. It's cheaper. It's actually cheaper now. Um, and so it's still hard to compete because coal and natural gas is subsidized. The government's literally paying them to stay cheap. <laughs> so these are the kinds of things like, yeah, I mean, get a group together, advocate to change that. Just stop Stop subsidizing and then work towards they should actually be taxed. They should actually have to pay for having polluted the environment. Hmm. That's a good, that's definitely a good suggestion because, you know, nothing hits you upside the head harder than having to come up off some money. Absolutely. And, and, and as soon as that demand is put on the table is when you will now see, you know, the political ramifications of, you know, what I'm, what I'm going to call the climate change war. Yeah. Know? That's when that's when you effectively declare war. Like right now, it's not war. This is just you know negotiations where people advocate for getting more renewable energy on the grid, and that's all fine and good. But it's it's less than a couple percent, mm -hmm. right? So as much as you see, you know, media ads trying to to play up how much solar panels have been put on the grid, it, it's it's negligible. It's small, and not only that, because there's no batteries to 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 go along with the solar panels. As soon as they put a big solar plant, they just put a natural gas plant to back it up. <laughs> so the amount of CO2 production is just still going up. Even though yeah. they're putting renewable energy, it's getting worse. Right. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that I think people need to get educated about and start advocating for very, very logical things like a carbon tax. Like that's, that's, that's not even the end. That's just the beginning. Like that's step one. Right. And carbon tax is, you know, right, right. Uh, something that uh, people are scared of. So people got to push for that indeed and um your next point was um switching to electric car or an extended range hybrid yeah um okay so i think i started with this in the beginning the two biggest sources of co2 emissions mm -hmm. are the elect electricity production and transportation. transportation transportation mainly being cars and the reason it makes sense to uh, switch to an electric car is because, you know, I'm giving you this perspective as from my perspective. And I know what technologies are being developed, right? Um, the most likely scenario that will come about whereby cars, the, the transportation sector is decarbonized is where you have electric vehicles. Now, what this does, and this is where, you know, you may see an article or two pointing this out, which is true, but this is this can be a good thing, um, is this shifts all the energy that is now required from transportation over to the electric grid, because that's how these cars are charged. So all the energy that's driving the cars is now going to come from the electricity sector. So in the, in the, in the, in the, in the worst case, what you, what you will have done is simply taken all the emissions that would have been from transportation and move them over to electricity sector emissions. Mm -hmm. Meaning the electricity 
demand is going to go up by the amount of energy required to do transportation. Mm -hmm. So in the first in the first sense, you may say, okay, well that's stupid because you don't you don't win if you do that, and that is true. Switching to the electric car does not necessarily do that unless you decarbonize the grid. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that it's smart to go ahead and switch to electric electrical car electric cars EVs is because the likelihood that we will decarbonize the grid is our greatest chance. Mm -hmm. Like we actually have a decent chance at decarbonizing the grid. Finding a way to drive a car that doesn't emit CO2 is a much harder problem. Um, let me try to let me try to paint it this way. To make something that gives you electricity so you can drive a car um, without that process producing CO2 is already challenging for the electrical grid, okay? But it's easier, it's an easier problem for the electric grid than it is for a car. And, here, and here's the main reason why. For electricity production, there are some constraints on the design. There are constraints on what you select and how you do it that are relaxed. If I'm gonna put up solar panels, I can use an entire field. I can use a square mile or more. I'm not constrained on how big of an area I can cover with solar panels, right? Um, we have plenty of land, you know, in, in case someone sees articles to this effect. There's no, there's no real significant constraint on how much land we have access to. Like, you can, you can easily power uh, the entire United States with, with uh, you know, um, um, less than I think the size of, uh, I want to say it's Texas or something like that. It's not, you don't need an entire state to even, um, covered with panels to cover the entire United States usage. So, so there's plenty of land. It's not like you're going to cover the entire United States. Um, but the point is there's no constraint on the area and there's also no constraint on weight. This mm. is the key thing for car is weight. So, if I needed to make a turbine or some some system that converts energy that's very heavy, and the best way for me to make it the most efficient, it turns out it's actually a very heavy device. It can work for electricity production, but it won't work for cars. Mm. All right. The second, the third aspect is size, which is also points to this point about a turbine. So, a turbine can take natural gas, convert it to electricity, and 60% of the energy content of the fuel can come out as electricity. For a car, that's more like 25%, hmm. meaning an internal combustion engine is, is, is nowhere near as efficient as a large power plant can be. And so you can do things to optimize and you can do a better job at making electricity when you're not constrained to have to make a device that has to be light enough to fit on a car, has to be safe enough to be around people. Has to, you know, there's all these other des what we call design constraints as an engineer that make the problem harder for a car than it is for a stationary power plant out in a field somewhere that no one's ever going to see or interact mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. That's a much easier problem to deal with. So us finding technologies and developing technologies that can decarbonize the grid, meaning make the grid, the electrical grid operate purely renewable with no CO2 emissions, that is a much easier problem than trying to make cars CO2 free. So therefore, the easiest thing to do is make the cars electric cars, which are charged by the grid, and then we decarbonize the grid. Decarbonize. And that is that is by far, I think, in my opinion, this is a strong, you know, I guess, expert opinion. But is, that is that is definitely the direction things are headed. Hmm. One, one last one sure. last point about I said two words in that part, which is electric vehicles and extended range hybrids. So many people don't know what an extended range hybrid is. 
So, um, well, many people don't even know what a hybrid is. So if you're not going to do either of those, at least get a hybrid. <laughs> um, an extended range hybrid. So, so an electric vehicle is one that you can you literally plug it in at home. You have to get some special um, uh, hardware installed at your house so that you can plug it up. But you basically charge it. You know, when you go home, recharge your battery. You know, most of these cars can drive at least 50 miles or more. The average American drives less than 50 miles a day. Uh, and so you can easily go do everything you normally do during the day and come home without running out of electricity. Um, but the extended range hybrid is another concept that I think is also a no-brainer, particularly because people get scared about the, what they call range anxiety or the ability to not be able to take a long trip. So an electric car takes significantly longer than it takes to put to stop at the gas station to recharge. So you know, typically they charge overnight. That's very healthy for the battery. Teslas, I believe, can charge to like 75% in 30 minutes or so. Um, but you're talking about more than the five minutes it takes to, to put gas in your car to, at a gas station. So um, an alternative is to actually get a car called an extended range hybrid, which you can plug it in and you can charge it. And then when your battery goes dead, it also has a gasoline engine that can kick in and recharge the battery. So you can fill it up with gas only when you need to. And you can use it like an electric car all the rest of the time. So 90% of the time, you can be using it as an electric car. When you happen to want to take it on a long trip, uh, you know, drive you know, up and down the East Coast, you can then utilize gas only on those occasions. You can stop at a gas station and fill up just like normal. Um, and, and it will still operate very efficiently. So, um, so that, that's an extended range hybrid. Um, I think it's important people to consider both of those options. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, switch to LEDs. That was one of your other suggestions. LED, LEDs, a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> so many people may have seen them in the store. You don't even know what it is. So somebody got a Nobel Prize for inventing the blue LED. <laughs> um, it's a great invention. Um, what it is is Y'all need some better PR in y'all field. Y'all need some dope I know, content, I know, man. I know, I know. Y'all need an influencer, <laughs> somebody who's, you know what I'm saying, who's got well, like I, a, a million that's views. I'm, that's why I'm doing That's why I'm doing this with you. So you, Hello. Can, you can help spread the word. Hello. You know? um, so an LED is basically the reverse of a solar cell. Mm. Um, I, I, heard, I heard a colleague who works on LED say that in a, in a very broad way. That I didn't even a really good LED. Think about it like that. Yeah. Okay. So what a solar? So many people don't know this. People think of Einstein and the theory of relativity. Einstein got his Nobel Prize for uh, discovering the photoelectric effect. The photoelectric effect is what underlies how a solar panel works. So Einstein really kind of discovered the thing that allowed solar panels to work. And what it is are there are certain materials where light comes in and it resonates, so to speak, with the electrons in that material and it will excite the electrons and then you, that excited electron is now quote unquote electricity so you can extract it and you've now converted the energy of the photon, the energy of the light into electricity directly, direct absorption of light into an excited electron. The reverse also works. You can also excite an electron and have it decay into a lower energy state and give off a photon. And so light can come out when you put in electricity. So it can also work in reverse. That device is then an LED. And so um, it's, a, 
big deal to come up with the blue LED because the blue LED is what now allowed them to make white lights. So if you think about LEDs, you probably got you know red LEDs and green LEDs that are like on you know on cell phones and all kinds of things like little little tiny little lights. Um, when they had the blue LED is now when you could make white lights. So now you could combine all the colors and make white lights. You could actually do lighting with LEDs. The reason LEDs are great is because um, the way, com compared to an incandescent light bulb, which is a typical light bulb that has a tungsten filament in it, you pass electricity through it, it heats up so hot it becomes glowingly, glowing white hot. And the light that's being emitted from the filament that you can see is only like 20% of the light that's coming out of that object. 80% of the light is actually infrared. It's this light we're talking about that's part of the greenhouse effect. Um, oh, let me give a great example. Um, everybody knows the greenhouse effect because it's exactly what happens in your car, especially if you're in Florida. When you get in your car in the summertime, you ever notice it's hotter in the car than mm -hmm. it is outside? Mm -hmm. That is exactly the effect of global warming. It's exactly the same thing. What happens is the windows on the car are transparent to the sunlight coming in. So they're, they're transparent to that light, but then glass is opaque in the other wavelength. So the, the longer infrared light that now is trying to escape the car from all the seats and all the upholstery heating up, it can't get out. This is exactly the effect that CO2 has. It, it, it traps the heat inside, and mm. so the car ends up hotter inside than it is outside. Um, and that's the effect of global warming. So mm. uh, back to the LED. So the, the LED is a technology that allows you to have a much higher efficiency of usage of the electricity. So instead of only like, you know, 10 or 20% of the energy you put in turning into light that you can actually see, the other 80, 90% being wasted as literally heat uh, or, or infrared light that you can't see, which is what happens in a normal incandescent light bulb, a LED just uses like all the electricity just to make the light that you're going to see with very little wasted energy. Hmm. The way you can see this very quickly and easily is just you can't put your hand on an incandescent light bulb because you'll burn yourself, but you can touch an LED that's just as bright. Hmm. It's not hot. And the reason it's not hot is because it's only making the light that you can see rather than making a bunch of extra light that you can't see. And that's why it's, it's efficient. Now, you'll see these are commercial things. You can go, they, they, they fit in normal light sockets. They've got all kinds of different styles. You can go buy LEDs at Home Depot. And what is usually off-putting to people is the price. So the price of an LED is significantly more expensive than the price of an incandescent light bulb. Mm -hmm. However, if, if you do the math, what it will tell you on there is that is, the, is what's called the lifetime. Like how many hours an LED can stay lit without burning out. And it is like, it's more than 10 times longer wow. than an incandescent light bulb. So when you factor in the fact that it lasts so much longer than a regular incandescent light bulb, you win in the end. You actually spend less money. You spend less money on the energy. And even though you spend more energy on the bulb initially, it lasts so long that it, 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 in the course of one to two years, it will, you will make your money back. Hmm. Dope. Dope, so, dope, dope. That, and that's simple. That's something like everybody can do that. Exactly. Anybody and you can, can you can switch them out in your home one by one. You don't have to go out and spend $100 and change 10 light bulbs to LEDs. LED bulbs are like 5 or 10 bucks rather than, you know, incandescent bulbs are like $1 or $2, something like that, mm -hmm. or 50 cents. Um, so, you, you know, you may not want to change all 10 bulbs all at once, but you can change them one by one. 
and and uh, and you will see the difference. And they, they're very bright, and you can you know they give normal light. You can pick different colors and all all kinds of stuff. Nice, nice. Now this one I I, I wasn't really familiar with. Um, you said consider putting PV on your roof and getting smart meter. Yeah. So if you live in a place that gets a decent amount of sunlight, um, you can, there are a number of, you know, companies that will do this for you. Uh, there's actually a, a sister actually in Atlanta who has a company, uh, I think it's called Solar Concierge. And, and basically she tries to make it easy for people. You, you, she's kind of like a consultant, I guess, or she, you, you call up her company and you tell them they'll come look at your situation and then like help you get solar panels on your roof kind of thing and they'll you know help you find the right price and get it all installed and hooked up um let me i guess let me first explain how it generally works with most utility companies at this point um your electricity meter usually it's outside your house it meters how much energy went into your household and that's how the electricity company knows how much to charge you those devices are pretty old. Many of them have been made a long time ago. So they only operate, they only move in one direction, which is usage, meaning you know they charge you per how much you use. If you put solar panels on your roof or, or wherever in your yard, um, generally what will happen or what can happen is you can produce more electricity than you actually will use, meaning um, during the sunny hours of the day, you will be producing more electricity than your household actually will use. And so the extra overflow of electricity can actually go in the reverse direction back onto the grid. So you can actually help power the grid when, when you have an excess of electricity. In order to do that, you need a meter that actually can operate in the opposite direction and mm -hmm. can count how much energy you're putting onto the grid. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when you sign up for things like this is your power bill will actually de decrease because you will get credit for having produced some energy. And if you size the size of the panels correctly or, or so large, it's possible that you can actually get a check from the utility company. Like they pay you because you're actually supplying more energy than you're using. Hmm. You can effectively turn your, your household into a little power plant. So, to speak. so if, you, if you produce more than you're using, uh, you can actually get a check from the power company. You don't pay anything. Right? Even though they may be supplying you when the sun is not out, you know, when you count out the, the, the net effect. So um, that's one approach that I think is, is a really smart thing, especially if you're in Florida, if you're in an area where uh, that's, it's extremely popular out in California. Um, there's actually, and this, is, this, is, this will show you, I think, the power of politics. You know, people in Massachusetts are pretty productive, uh, progressive. And so you'll see actually a lot of houses with solar panels on them in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts don't, don't get very, barely any sunlight. Right, right, uh, right, right. But because people have pushed for it, the utility company has created programs and incentives to allow people to do that profitably. And then there are also these companies, I uh, forget the term I put on it, um, uh, um, there are these companies that will allow you to buy into a solar installation so the panels don't necessarily have to go on your roof. They can go out in a field somewhere. So you pay money every day, I mean every every month like it's part of your electric bill, but you are contributing to a solar power plant and in, in exchange you get credits on mm -hmm. your power bill. Mm -hmm. okay? 
power bill gets reduced for how much solar you bought. Um, and these are these are great ways to immediately begin increasing and contributing to how much renewables are on the grid. Because that's that's one of the most important things you have to do is decarbonize the grid or convert all the fossil-based power plants over to um, solar panels and wind. Thank you for being practical. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're not going to bang people upside the head with the doom and gloom and not have you walking away with at least some information on um, how you can help turn this thing around. Because, you know, we're all kind of split on, you know, racial lines, on political lines, on religious lines, on whatever lines. And none of that shit really matters when <laughs> the yeah. whole planet's kind of, you know, going through this process that's completely unnatural to it. And, you know, we're all on this thing together. And, um, yeah. you know, we all have to be able to, to, to work with each other in order to get some plan plans of action together so that we can turn this thing around you know what i mean um so you know what are like you mentioned a lot of just like small daily changes that we can make to decrease our carbon footprint is there any other things that you can think about you know you talked a little bit about electric cars extended hybrid cars led lights um you know those, those are the big ones you can also um there are uh, companies that will do a household energy audit so there's companies you can pay for that will come and take a look at your household, how it's built, how it's constructed, take out, you know, especially night vision cameras or, or infrared cameras, look at where the heat leakages are in your household and help you figure out how to patch up where you're losing heat and how to manage the energy in your household better. That's another thing that's rather easily accessible um, to, 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 to the lay person. Um, but those are the big ones that are kind of like no-brainers. Um, mm -hmm. There's also a bunch of other small things that maybe people could do as well, but, but those are the things that I think are pretty ubiquitous applied to, to everyone. The big issue is we need a political movement to push for more money for research so we can create the new technologies that, for example, we'll figure out how we can produce aluminum in a different way. Um, for example, how we can produce concrete and steel in different ways. These are... These are, these are really really huge industry and you know that's probably the better use of someone's time than to try and you know not utilize plastic or something mm -hmm. like that i mean you know um you know plastic largely overtook glass and and and, and metal as a um, for food containment um largely because it doesn't break <laughs> right i mean you can drop it it doesn't break uh it's also lighter weight and it's Many many people don't appreciate like plastic is made from oil, mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. you know those are very very long chain hydrocarbons that are made from oil. Like plastic comes from oil, so that's another big revenue source for the oil companies: plastic production. Indeed. Um, okay. so I don't, I don't really hung up on trying to not use. You know, mo most I think the biggest problems. If you see the pie charts and look at like where most of the problems are coming from. These are industrial scale problems. Indeed, you know, yeah, yeah. Large, who the culprits are. It's not like the average person who, you know, ran their dishwasher during the day versus at <laughs> night. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's negligible in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you know, you're talking about products that pollute the environment. Like there's natural gas leakage. That's, that's a big deal for the environment. Right. Like natural gas 
has a much higher global warming potential than CO2. So just natural gas leakage in different places is a bigger problem than you know people making small switches to different products. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, real quick, people talk a lot about, and this kind of can is, and we can kind of wrap it up with this, but this kind of ties into a very important piece of your research. Um, people always talking about solar panel, solar panel, solar panel, but everything has pros and cons, and we hear a lot about the pros for solar panel, which are fantastic. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I'm not even trying to downplay that at all. But talk about some of the restrictions and limitations with solar panels and then kind of segue into um, your research with the ceramic pump. Oh, I see. <laughs> so um, really the only downside to solar panels is that you only get the electricity when the sun is out. So if there's cloud cover, the electrical output goes down immediately. I mean, it's, it's directly correlated to the weather. So when the sun is out and you get a clear, you know, influx of light hitting the panel, that's when you get the electricity. So the problem is um, if you try to put a bunch of solar panels on the utility grid, uh, there's been some modeling done. Um, by a guy named Paul Denholm out of National Renewable Energy Lab over the last decade or so, he's shown that there's this really significant issue you run into. Um, and he doesn't even just look at solar, he looks at wind as well. So the, you know, if you just package it together and say renewables, what happens, okay, let me, let me take one step back because I have to explain how the grid actually works. Um, so every electrical outlet that you, you have in your household uses what's called alternating current, AC current, which means the electrons are moving back and forth, back and forth at 60, and they move at 60 hertz, which is 60 times back and forth every second. That 60 hertz is exactly tied to the frequency and the speed of the turbines producing the electricity. They're actually synchronized. So the turbine spinning is exactly what's making the electrons slosh back and forth exactly at 60 hertz. So the grid has a frequency, and the turbines spin up, and they have to catch up and get in sync and resonate with that frequency, and that's how they put energy on the grid. Um, and so um, when that process happens, um, the key thing that people have to understand is that um, with solar panel, the only real downside is that you, you don't get the electricity when you want it. And so with, with the turbines being the way they are, they have some kind of intrinsic limitations on how quickly they can ramp from producing zero electricity to all 100% electricity. And that's what we call a ramp rate. And so if you ramp the turbines too fast, you will actually damage them. You'll damage their life, and they'll be destroyed you know, they'll have to undergo more maintenance and, and it's costly. So now if you think about, <clears throat> if you look at um, uh, data for how people utilize electricity on the grid, what happens is during the day when the sun is out, if you try to put a lot of solar on the grid, you'll end up with an overabundance of electricity during the middle of the day. And this has actually already started to happen in states like Arizona where they actually have to throw away the electricity or what they actually do is, um, what they say is the price went negative 
for the electricity, so they actually pay other states to take it off the grid because they have too much of it. And you might say, okay, well, that's a good thing. Um, it's not a good thing because that affects the price. Uh, it, it affects the economics of having the panels in the first place. Because once you start throwing away the electricity, that means you're not getting the value for having put up the panels. And so you're not getting paid. If you're the person who put up the panels, you don't get paid. You're actually paying to get the electricity uh, thrown away. And so there's this, there's this phenomenon that, that he predicted um, that is coming to pass, which is that when the sun goes down, you have all this extra electricity, and then it goes from, I had a bunch, to now I have like nothing, all of a sudden when the sun goes down. And what that would require of the grid is that all the turbines basically have to turn off during the day while the sun is out, and then they have to ramp up from not being on to being full on in the course of like an hour while the mm -hmm. sun is about to go down. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it becomes costly and expensive, and it, and it basically doesn't work, and so he computes how much of the grid's electricity can come from renewables without storage. Like if you don't store the energy somehow, you run into this problem where you literally can't put more renewables on the grid because you can't use it, utilize it. It comes at times that you don't need it and you can't meet the, you can't meet the load. And so um, around the entire world, there's lots of people who acknowledge and recognize the storage problem, what we call the storage problem, as the, current, the, the most important technological problem to try and resolve, uh, mitigate climate changes, we have to find a way to store the energy. You have to, and it has to be way cheaper than lithium-ion batteries. Lithium-ion batteries are way, are way too expensive. So um, if you put up solar panels and you say, okay, well, I'll just put up some batteries to go with it, it turns out the batteries are way more expensive than the panels are when you try to size it. So the batteries become the dominant cost, and it's now now it can no longer compete with uh, fossils. So we have to find a very cheap, inexpensive way of storing energy, and that is the, the, the one of the technologies that I work on. Um, one of the things that we realized some years ago is that storing heat, energy as heat, can be 10 to 100 times cheaper than storing energy as electricity. The main reason being that when you store energy as heat, you're essentially just, quote unquote, heating something up. You're increasing the speed and the kinetic energy of the atoms. And the beauty of that is that you can do that over and over and over and over, essentially as many times as you want without degrading the material. The, one of the key problems with batteries is that their cycle life, you know, they, their performance degrades over time. The more you cycle it and the deeper you cycle it, the less energy they store over time. And so you, they get to a point at, you know, in the, in the range of 10 years or so that you have to replace them. And so you have to factor that into the cost that every 10 years you're paying for new batteries. That's part of what kills you with batteries. So anyway, we are working on a, um, a technology, a, a new approach that instead stores heat rather than storing electricity, stores it much, much more cheaply as a extremely high temperature liquid metal. and our first breakthroughs, technological breakthrough along this direction was um, was pumping. So, you know, I used to pitch this concept, you know, store heat really, really hot. You can do all these you know, interesting things with it. And the question I would always get from people is, oh, you know, that, that sounds all good talking about pumping liquid metal, but how are you going to pump it? <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, there existed no pump that could operate that hot. Um, and the reason is be for a couple reasons. Most pumps 
are uh, made out of metal. And if you try to pump a liquid metal with a pump made out of metal, um, you will dissolve away the metal that the pump is made out of. And, and, and let me maybe give a, a, a more graphic uh, analogy that people may be able to, uh, to relate to. It, it would be like trying to make a pump made out of sugar that's going to pump sugar water. Right, like very quickly the sugar will dissolve into the water and your pump will just go away. And so that's the same kind of thing that happens with metal. Metals, most metals will dissolve into other metals. So if you have a liquid metal and it's hot, it's going to very quickly eat away and dissolve the rest of the metal that's holding it. Mm -hmm. So our, our you know, seemingly, I guess it is, at that time it was a very radical idea. Um, it's starting to catch on now. Uh, our idea was to not use metal to hold the metal. <laughs> right. Instead, use materials like ceramics and, uh, and graphite. The main reason no one had thought to do that previously is because ceramics are brittle. Mm -hmm. So if you drop a ceramic plate on the ground, it shatters. And if you drop a metal, if you drop a metal plate on the ground, it doesn't shatter. And this is the this is just related to the intrinsic material properties. It has to do with the way the atoms are bonded. You know, metal atoms are bonded in such a way that their fractures are ductile, meaning they bend before they break. Mm -hmm. And uh, those like ceramics are brittle in the sense that they just snap. And, but one of the benefits of ceramics, it's also interrelated with the way that they're bonded, uh, or the way their chemical bonding is, um, is that they have much higher temperature stability. They are covalently bonded, generally speaking, covalently bonded material. And they do not chemically interact with, with certain metals. And so we chose uh, certain combinations of metals and ceramics, and we managed to make a pump out of ceramics, so it's a little bit scary to think about moving parts that are glowing white hot, all made out of this, you know, essentially materials that would break the same way that a plate would break if you if you dropped it. Um, but with some careful engineering, we were able to to demonstrate it, um, and so we got some, some notoriety from that. And um, probably most significantly, I think that the, the layperson can appreciate is we we now have the Guinness Book of World Records for the highest temperature pump ever made. Hopefully, we'll be actually breaking that record in a, in a couple months about the pump. Um, that that first record was at 1,400 degrees C. Wow. And uh, it should be going to 2,000 degrees C in a couple months. That's a, I think that was a that was a light flex right there. <laughs> <laughs> that was a light flex. And I'm going to let you have that long, flex long because it it's works. really dope. <laughs> because it's, you know, yeah, that's dope. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And this is, t listen, y'all. Don't don't let him fool you. Don't let the PhD fool you. See, he's 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 being a scientist on this show right now, but ain't nobody touching <laughs> Dr. Henry on these beats. We just, <laughs> you, you started off with the light scientific flex. I'm gonna do a flex for you on some other stuff. You know, because he's out here right. trying to help humanity with this uh <laughs> with, with these energy uh situations and solve energy problems he hasn't had time to dust that mpc off but man listen if y'all fool around and do all of these points that he said that you needed to do and um you don't have to work so hard y'all he gonna he gonna blow the dust off that mpc and he's gonna blow y'all heads off with with, with these crazy beats 
He's fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I wish that he was able to do it, but I, I, I absolutely understand why he can. I just had to throw another flex in there real quick. You did the scientific flex. I, I, I had that. to do the artistic <laughs> flex real quick. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I miss it. I miss it dearly, man. I know. I, I know you do. Okay. I know you do. But we appreciate so, so the work that you do. I do. And, yeah, um, and I think once people hear this show, I think they're going to appreciate it as well. This is just an aside, y'all. I really had to put that light flex in there about the beats because he wasn't going to tell you about it. But he's a bad producer. He just has not had the time to be able to make the beats because he's too busy trying to get the climate together. You know what I'm saying? But yes, what you've been vibing to in the background, he did that. This one that I'm about to play real quick, uh, just a short clip. He made that one as well. And then I got a really dope surprise for y'all at the end. So y'all stay tuned. All right. Peace. Where can they find you on Facebook? Um, Ashegun Oladibolu is, is the name I have on Facebook. Oladibolu is my Yoruba last name. Um, which there's a whole long story behind that. I'll, I'll refrain from giving that now. But it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very special name. Yes. Special yes. Name. Trust me, y'all. I have a special name too that has a whole story too. So you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, but it's um, it's the name my sons have as their last name. Um, went ahead and ended the tradition of carrying on the slave slave master's last. Listen, name. that's where I'm at with it. There's there's a whole thing, but you know that's that's not what this show is about today. We'll have to chat about that offline. <laughs> but um, <laughs> any any other final words? You you have anything else that you want to say? Uh, just go get active. Go get active and. And surprise me, surprise everyone with, with um, very cool, interesting, innovative ideas for how you can come up with to get more people, not just, I mean, awareness is one thing. I mean, you can get people aware, but that, that doesn't move the needle, just having everybody knowledgeable about the problem. At, at some point, it's got to become aggressive and active in the sense of demanding change um, at a policy level. Because, you know, even if today I had the cheapest technology, and my, I could tell you, I could, I could supply renewable energy to the grid, half the cost of coal and natural gas. It still wouldn't get proliferated. Like without policy changes, none of this stuff gets proliferated. And so, um, it's going to take a social, political, 
movement to make that happen. And, you know, I only have so much bandwidth to do, you know, I'm working on one part of the problem, the technological aspect, but, the, you know, for everyone else out there, I, you know, we need help. We need your help to, to, uh, to change the rules so that these Word. things can get out there and place the existing technology. Dope, dope. Well, Dr. Henry, thank you for so so much for coming on to TT Talks. I appreciate it. Always good chatting and chopping it up with you. Thank you for your expertise and um, bringing the information to the people. I think people are really going to enjoy this. And, um, yeah, I hope this is able to spark um, some further movement in the direction to kind of turn this thing around for us. So I appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank you for having me. Indeed. Thank you again, Dr. Ashe Henry, for your work, your knowledge, and your insight. Remember, y'all, he said, in his opinion, the best source of facts about climate change was the annual IPCC report. Remember, the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, www.ipcc.ch. Just click on the reports link at the top and choose which report you want to view, okay? Let's get the facts, y'all. And shout out to my homie, Dr. Bruce Strobel. You may remember him from my midterm election panel show on episode 14. That was a powerful show um, I did with uh, a few brilliant folk that I know. Dr. Strobel is the director of the organization called Citizens for a Sustainable Future. Anyway, on social media, he reached out to his favorite MC, King Crooked, also known as MC Crooked Eye and asked him to do an environmental justice song. And Crooked Eye not only responded, but he came with a banger, as per usual. So I reached out to King Crooked and asked if I could play the song on the show. He was gracious enough to let me use it. So make sure y'all go to Bandcamp, purchase this song by King Crooked called Earth Day in the Hood. Y'all enjoy this heat, all right? Thank you so much for rocking with TT. See y'all next time. Peace. Weeklies came back early because it was Earth Day, Mother Nature's birthday. But environmental racism is hurting the hood in the worst way, yo. Hold up. Give us a chance. Quit building them chemical plants. We don't want that smoke. Here's a list of demands. Fix Flint's water. Take a Michigan stance. Picture getting your hands wet and poison sitting in your glands. Giving us autism. Empathy's missing. And ADHD. Teachers can't get me to listen. A low test score is a penitentiary visit. Because they building a pipeline from elementary to prison. It's all facts. If you care to dispute it, told me to reach for the sky. But the air was polluted. Now I get it from the mud. But the soil's contaminated. So the fruits of my labor are hard. Hard to share when uprooted, dig. Climate change is real, you can't ignore the vibe. You in the beach house balling, you can't ignore the tide. That ain't where the poor reside. By 2045, just keep your eyes on the shore because it's sure to rise. Ride. You better retreat for some cover, karma for dumping your toxic waste on people of color. Faucets of dirty water, might as well drink from the gutter. Politicians lying to us, thinking they speaking to suckers. We talking, they ain't heard of shit. Cold dust from the train tracks causing birth defects. Make you wrap your hands around their throat like the turtlenecks. Humans are the cancer that the earth detects. So what's next? We on the verge of extinction. Bob your head as that sinks in. My sink pen is blacker than my ink pen. They do it for the cash money. They chemicals give me asthma. I'm feeling a little wheezy when I breathe in. What's cracking, homie? Now nah, what's fracking? Extracting oil from rocks in the profit stacking. The oil spilling the soil, your vegetables are blacking. The rich eat the poor and wipe their mouth with a napkin. But you don't like me conscious rapping, right? You want some jewels, homie? Tap <laughs> Yo, shout out Dr. Bruce. What's happening? Yeah. Shout out Brooke and Joseph in Tennessee. Adam J. Cook. Hey, yo, what up, King Destro? Yeah. Bark at you.
know the rest. 